0: Most of you were starting to turn automatically to Acts. I'm going to ask you to turn in Galatians, a corollary passage to our study this morning. In Acts, we will be in Acts this morning. I'll bring you out of Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin reading verse 16. We'll read through chapter 6 in its entirety. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares in Galatians 5, beginning verse 16 I say then, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you in time past, or which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual, restore such a one a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that you may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brother, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning uh, with a word of prayer. I usually do an introduction first, but I want to. Um, uh, proceed a little more seamlessly into the message from last week into the message of this week. So let's go, Lord, and pray together this time. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity again to look into your word, and we pray, as always, for your spirit's direction, both in what is said, that it might be in accordance with your word of truth, that it might be guarded from error, from the opinion of men, from the philosophies of this world, and Lord, that you might uh, work in us not only what is said, but was heard, that we might be receptive to your truth, and without doubt, and receiving it with the authority that you it to have in our lives. And Lord, we know that none of this really happens by the will of men, but by the work of your Spirit and the wisdom of God. So Lord, we uh, submit ourselves to you and we pray that this hour we might learn of you, having learned of you, might by faith uh, trust in you, that that trust might be evident in our living. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 8, and we have been working our way through the book of Acts. We come to this passage, and we have several aspects of our Christianity that is brought into uh, a very clear magnifying glass. Uh, We have often talked about salvation going out and get excited about conversions and of, of many people getting saved. And we have already seen, at least on two occasions in the book of Acts, where we have a more realistic view of that, that just because people come and say they have become a Christian because they've made a confession of faith does not necessarily equate to Christian living nor to the hope of eternity. Um, In fact, on one occasion, it says that there was a mixed multitude, that there were some that believed the miracles, the power of God, but the Bible begins to distinguish between those who are willing to follow God, become disciples. And so... Um, we have seen on several occasions this distinguishment between those who make a profession of faith, those who claim to be Christian for whatever reasons, and their motives, of course, the Bible exposes very strongly uh, when they say, I believe, and then we see no evidence of that belief. That there is, uh, as soon as that belief is put under a pressure cooker, once it's examined, once, once the, the heat of persecution or opposition comes upon it, that it just wilts away because there's no root. There's no structure there beneath the soil of the heart that would make it endure and survive. And so, um, we are given that very clearly in the book of Acts that there was within the church, even in the early days, a mixed multitude. And we compared that to That when Israel was coming out, they all crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They all drank the water from the split rock of Horeb. They all ate manna. And yet the Bible describes them as a mixed multitude. That some were of faith and some were not. They had all the same experiences. But it did not equate to the same relationship with God. And so in the early church, they all had the same experiences. They saw the powerful working of God in people's lives. They all had the same uh, uh, awe in in respect to that. They all responded similarly with that word believe that we have taken and set aside and said, well, that's all you need to do is believe. And we have then called them Christians and just said, well, that's the job done. Check that one off and now let's go on. But in, throughout the book of Acts, both in the historical record of Acts, but also in the teaching of the epistles, um, we find a very different approach. That the expectation isn't that we make converts to Christianity, but that we make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is borne out in passage after passage after passage, not just books like James and Hebrews, but across the board as the expectation is is that you cannot claim to be a child of God and sin. We saw that in our study in 1 John. Uh, We saw that, and we're going to see it today, of course, when we visit Galatians that we read earlier this morning. Um, And so we find here in the account of Simon the sorcerer, and it's really not fair that we call him that because it's Simon the former sorcerer. Because he did abandon that. We find a real test of... Where's the proof of your faith? In the midst of that last week, we talked about um, his conversion, um, and yet in his immaturity, he comes and still brings some of his old life into this new life. And we're going to take that concept and really just drive it home with a study, not of the Christian living necessarily, but really a study of the impartation of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works within us because um, that is a text that I skipped last week because I wanted to come to it this Sunday. And so we saw in Simon this, uh, he believed, he received baptism, he was um, there within the church, but then he sees something occur that that was way beyond his experience. He sees it as a good thing, but he brings his old life into it, and he says in his immature faith that hadn't really developed and, and by immature faith, it doesn't mean that he was just a Christian for a short time. I've seen people who have claimed to be a Christian for decades who had immature faith. Because they just weren't grounded, they weren't rooted, they weren't developed. They hadn't invested in, as we're going to talk about this morning, here in a little bit. And so in his immature faith, he he brings philosophies and, and, and approaches and attitudes from his old life. And he brings it into the environment of the church and... He introduces it. I, I would like to have the ability to have the Holy Spirit fall on whoever I lay hands on. Sounds pretty good. Maybe we should all desire after that capacity. Um, but to achieve that, he offers money to the apostles. And of course, Peter's response we saw last week you, may you perish with your money. Very strong words. That you have no part and pars- you have nothing to do with what's going on here because you think that you can buy any aspect of spiritual life from God with money? You think that money is a, any important facet of what's going on here in the church? It isn't. I know that more pastors would start to communicate that more often. It seems that too much. Of the communication with regard to money in our churches is the opposite. It's more like Simon's than it is like Simon Peter's. Give a little money, and we'll make this great work of God happen for you. Well, Peter has something to say about that. He says, may you perish with your money. Take your money, and may you and your money die. But he does have a solution to this problem in Simon's life, and has to repent. And Simon, every evidence is that he does. And for that, we should rejoice. That he is growing in his faith. He is maturing and he's recognizing that if I keep bringing my old self into this new life, it is going to wreak havoc on my new life and it's going to endanger my new life. There's a genuine threat there. If we continually keep putting in to this new life, These things that belong to our old life before we knew Christ as our Savior. In the midst of this, uh, the events that were unfolding here, we find a theological conundrum a little bit um, because we um, see people who have believed in Jesus Christ, who have accepted baptism by the ministry of Philip the Evangelist, um, and yet there's something missing in their lives, there's something absent. And let's go ahead and pick up on that here in uh, chapter 8 of Acts, uh, beginning in verse 13. I want to read verse, no, let's read verse 12. It says, But when they believed as Philip as, believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also. And we're going to stop right there. And that's the text that I pretty much skipped last week because I was only going to preach half a sermon and it still went way too long. I tried. Um, And I want to take some time to really reference what was going on here. First of all, I want to go back to our introduction to the book of Acts. Remember, the book of Acts is a historical record. It is not uh, intended to really be a doctrinal treatise. In other words, we don't look at this and say, well, we're going to do it just like they did it. Um, It also is a historical record of a certain period of time called the Apostolic Age. And therefore, there were things going on here that don't necessarily um, mean it's going to go on in this day. Um, There was a development. And one of these things of the development was this distribution of the Holy Spirit throughout his church. And we certainly saw that here the disciples were waiting for Pentecost. Um, They were believers in Jesus Christ. They had witnessed His resurrection. They had followed Him for for those three and a half years or so. Um, They they were staying in Jerusalem, being obedient, and God says, you're going to have to wait, and then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then you'll receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. We have them waiting there as believers in Jesus Christ waiting. And on the day of Pentecost, of course, we have the Holy Spirit coming in great power. We have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in, in uh, visible ways and audible ways. We have um, these tongues and we have this roaring sound Uh, that that manifests itself to the people there in that room. We have the communication of the gospel in all the languages of all the people that have flooded into Jerusalem for Pentecost, for this Jewish holiday. And we find this outworking of His presence. Well, I say, well, that's what we want to have happen today. Not necessary. Not what we are commanded to do. We then see... A, a very deliberate process of going through this command of Christ in Acts 1-8 that the gospel will begin in Jerusalem, it'll go to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. And we can look back into the gospels and see that there was one individual that God granted the uh, position of authority to uh, supervise that process, if you will, to participate in it with God in a leadership role among even the 12 disciples there. Um, and of course, that was Peter, and we make much about the keys of the kingdom, um, and I just want to share with you that those keys were used up in chapter 8 and were employed and were completed very quickly, really, in terms of the, the chapters here. And so we find that among the things that in the development of the early church, of its birth, if you will, and it's still being birthed, and it hasn't really fully been birthed. Uh, we talk about Pentecost being the birthday of the church, but it's really uh, the, the beginning of the birth, if you will. Um, it was the crowning part of the birth. It wasn't the full delivery. All right? And uh, so the full delivery isn't going to happen really until we get to the events around Cornelius and the Jerusalem Council. Uh, When we get to those, we're going to talk a little bit about those this morning. But that's going to be the full delivery. And Peter and the apostles are going to be engaged in this whole process. And so as we saw the persecution come and and the church being scattered now out of Jerusalem into Judea, and we see uh, that they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And we have no indication that there was any required additional work for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Those of Jerusalem and Judea. It has not been recorded for us at all. It simply said that they believed, they repented of their faith, they trusted in Christ, they received believers' baptism, um, and uh, we have no indication that they did not receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, this very statement is, means that this is an exception. There's something different about Samaria than about Judea or Jerusalem. There's something unique. There was something important that had to occur here very deliberately to get the attention of the church. The church was pretty myopic. It was kind of had blinders up, and it was pretty Jewish. Those blinders were Jewish custom and and and, and Jewish uh, uh, believers, and and uh, the expectation was that this is just a wonderful movement for our people. Well, now we've reached into Samaria, and by the the working of Philip in in the chief city of Samaria, we have many coming to Christ, and and uh, we have the impact now that, well, what does that mean for this myopic church that sees itself only as really a Jewish thing? Uh, what do we see this now? What do we do with this? What, what, how do we respond? And so, God send, the church sends, really, and, and Lord through the church sends its two leaders. It sends Peter and John. Go find out what's going on. We heard rumors. Things are happening in Samaria. Can the gospel really go to Samaritans? Can they really get saved? And there's a huge barrier of prejudice between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And also from the Samaritans to the Jewish people, by the way. Um, the Samaritan woman at the well was just as prejudiced as any other Jew she would expect expected to find at the well. In her statements. A prejudice isn't a one-way street. It's seldom, if ever. And we find that the prejudices were there, and so the church that was trying to overcome that. And so they send this out and say, well, let's see. Uh, let's see what happens for them. And uh, so out go Peter and John. <clears throat> and they pray for them, first of all. They pray for the believers there and that they would receive the Holy Spirit because they had not been their experience yet. They were believers. They had seen the great working of God through Philip's life. They were following Phil. Simon himself says, I'm going to follow you everywhere you go. That's discipleship. I want to become a follower. Um, they received believers' baptism, and, but the Spirit's not there. And Peter comes, and for the sake of the entire church in its infancy, um, it was necessary that the leadership from Jerusalem come and participate in this process. And it wasn't the laying on of hands that, that was the power, by the way. That wasn't the authority, that was a mechanism that that Peter used, but it's not the only mechanism, as we're going to see here very shortly, and and this is where Simon was confused of what was really going on too. It says at the end of, of verse 15, it says, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, after an explanatory passage about why that was necessary, because no one had received it yet, no Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit yet. This is something radical the church is going to have to deal with. And to help the church accept this, that this is part of the working of God, we're going to send two of the main leaders in to watch it and to actually participate in it happening. And so with laying on of their hands, um, although really it was more their prayer for them, the Spirit comes upon Samaritans. Can you believe it? Samaritans can get the Holy Spirit too. And we have the testimony of not only Philip, the evangelist, that they're coming to Christ by the multitudes, but we also have Peter and John, the apostles, who are opening the door up to the Samaritans. And it seems that we finally start to see uh, active participation in this work of God that says, listen, the gospel isn't just for Jerusalem. It's not just for Judea. It's for Samaria. Samaria cross those barriers of prejudice and take the gospel where it's supposed to go, and that's to all men, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so let's look at this development. And there are many in circles today that want to replicate this. And again, I don't see Acts as being a book that asks us to replicate everything that happened here. This is an account of what was done in the early church. Um, and when we get into the epistles and we get to some of the later books of Acts, in fact, we're going to see some of these very things causing problems in the church instead of solutions. Instead of being the the avenue to a powerful, active church, they're going to be a detriment to its testimony in the community. And that's what happened in, in several of the cities that Paul went into. And so we come to uh, this early stage, and it was necessary that the apostles were involved in. Let's jump ahead and look at uh, the next level of that. Let's go to chapter 10 of Acts. In chapter 10, we have uh, another group of people that are going to be reached by the gospel. A godly Roman soldier, pretty high official, centurion, um, is a devout man. He's not a convert to Judaism, and that's really important uh, for the next couple of weeks He's not a, a, a convert. He hasn't received uh, the circumcision. He hasn't been baptized in Judaism. He is he's not a convert to Judaism. He's a true Gentile, but he's a godly man. It says he's a devout man, and he did good works, and he, and he sought after God. He wanted to know the one true and living God. And he certainly had that access to the Jewish concept. He's there um, in the regions of Israel, and he has prayed, and God's answered his prayer. And he has sent, of all people, Peter. Because, and Peter had to have some preparatory work in his life for this to happen. Because um, Peter, this is a huge barrier of prejudice. If Samaria was a barrier of prejudice. Um, this is, going to the Gentiles is a wall of Prejudice. So we have to overcome all of this, and God has to intervene in in Peter's life to enable that to happen. And so Peter uh, followed God's command to go and preach the gospel. We have that recorded for us in Acts 10, verse 34 through 43. I want to jump to the end, verse 44. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Isn't that amazing? Now, for all those who want to replicate what happened to the Samaritans, now you've got a problem because everything that happened to the Samaritans is in reverse order now with the Gentiles. You see, the Samaritans heard the word and believed and received baptism and were following after Philip and still hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Then Peter shows up, prays, lays hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes. But with the Gentiles, we have Peter showing up, he preaches the word, and and he hasn't laid hands on them, he hasn't prayed for them, they haven't been baptized, none of that has occurred, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, boom! It almost kind of shakes Peter up, you know? I'm here preaching, all of a sudden, everyone's got the Holy Spirit. Because they believe, They they, they believe what they heard. And they haven't manifested it by being baptized. They haven't participated in following after these. These were well prepared. And it says that they believed. And they heard the words. While he was still talking, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They didn't have to hear the whole message. They were believing from the beginning. And, and as he gets through the gospel and shares who Jesus Christ is, and as they hear this, they're believing it as it comes. And the Spirit fills them the spirit comes upon them and Peter hasn't even finished his sermon and already the spirit has come and you might say well maybe that's how it's supposed to happen well again the focus here is we are going from Jewish people to Samaritans and now we're going to everybody anybody who hears the word and believes And there is no magic in Peter's hands that if he lays hands on you, that's where Simon got it wrong. There is no magic in Peter's hands that he can give the Holy Spirit to whoever he wants. If that were the case, he just had to walk around and touch everybody. But here, he is proclaiming the Word of God and the people hear it and and in response to their faith, because Peter's presence is there as a representative of the Church of Jerusalem and the authority of God uh, to open up, the kingdom of God to all men. He is there, and I will conclude that this is pretty much, except for his testimony of this fact to the Jerusalem Council, the completion of Peter's role of of opening the keys of the kingdom. That he has opened the doors for all men to get saved. It is not an act that needed to be accomplished again, again, again. It was singular, it was complete, and Uh, It was not singular, there was at least two or three occasions, but it was complete at this point. In the infancy, the church is fully born, Um, it's finalized, the umbilical cord is cut, so to speak, um, in the Jerusalem Council, when they finally just say, certainly the gospel is gone to all men, even the Gentiles. Not all Jewish men, all men. God wants all men everywhere to repent. the mechanization of how it happens, the, the the actions and the order that we spend so much time investing in um, aren't really the factor. That's not really what, what Acts is trying to communicate. You have to do it in this particular order. Rather, the expectation is is that now in the birthing of the church, God has very deliberately shown to the Jewish community the extent of what He intends to do. He intends to reach all men with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and He's going to use Peter as the lead in presenting that to the church and leading the church in doing that. So I want to go back to this work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and by the way, um, as regards to Judaism, um, we're going to see Philip next week and the Ethiopian eunuch. And of course, one of the questions the Ethiopian eunuch says, "Well, here's some water. What keeps you from being baptized?" Phil's response is, well, if you believe, you should be baptized. And we have no statement of his receiving the Holy Spirit in what context, but we know that he had. But again, we're not dealing with a Gentile in the Ethiopian eunuch. We're dealing with a proselyte to Judaism who was up at Jerusalem worshiping. He was worshiping in Jerusalem, which makes him, uh, if not Jewish by birth, Jewish by faith. And so, um, In that context, Philip accomplished that. The Ethiopian eunuch goes his way. Philip goes his way. And we know that there was a very powerful church established in Ethiopia very early on, and we attribute it to Ethiopian eunuch as the church planter for Ethiopia, opening that door up. And so we have individuals who are coming to Christ as proselytes um, who, um, we aren't recorded that there was any spectacular presentation of the Holy Spirit in that respect as we have recorded in other places. But there is one exception. Don't you love exceptions? And that's in Acts chapter 19, if you want to turn there. And this, of course, is the arrival of Paul to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Uh, reading God's words is better than listening to what I would say. It says, And it happened while Paul was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard there whether there is a Holy Spirit. Kind of interesting. And he said to them, In what, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, those eight verses are very important. Um, and they might say, well, here you are. He's laying on his hands. Now the order is reestablished. But I want to contend with you again. We're dealing with proselytes. They were all meeting in the synagogues. They are all Jewish. But they heard a guy come through town who had a message. He is a guy that, was, that got out of Jerusalem somehow before John the Baptist had died. All he knew was what John the Baptist taught. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is to come after me. And that's what he went everywhere teaching people. And one of the places he arrived at was Ephesus. And he went there and taught them what he was taught by John the Baptist. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He wasn't in Israel. He had, when the three and a half years that Jesus ministered, he wasn't there. He had already left the territory. He hadn't ever heard of Jesus. And it took two laymen to show up and say, man, you have a powerful message, but it's John the Baptist's message. You haven't heard about Jesus? He fulfilled all that John the Baptist talked of. And Apollos believed and, and, and said, great, and he accepted Jesus Christ and he, at the end of verse chapter 18 of Acts, we're going to study that later on, but uh, um, in the wake of him <laughs> were all these communities that he visited preaching what John the Baptist told him to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. Jesus is coming. And one of those communities was Ephesus. So remember, Apollo's ministry was only to the Jews. He, in, he also didn't know that God wanted Samaritans reached. He also didn't know that God wanted Gentiles reached. So who he's preaching to is the Jews. He's going to synagogues. And so Paul arrives, and it's his custom to go to the Jews first. He goes to the synagogue, and he gets up and preaches out of the Old Testament, uh, out of their, prophets, out of their uh, law and prophets, and he preaches Christ from those texts. Uh, and when he arrives there, he finds a whole bunch of people who are already ready They've already repented. They've already been baptized. They're they're expecting. They're waiting. They're looking forward to it. They kind of missed out on all Pentecost. (laughs) The church has already been born. We don't even know how long they've been believers. Let's just get an idea. Paul is on his missionary journey. We're not talking about a few months after Jesus, right? Jesus has been resurrected for probably about 15 to 20 years. They have been following the teachings of John the Baptist for 15 years, possibly, as long as. Paul has been out there teaching this for probably 20 years. He's been faithfully ministering this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Paul comes upon Ephesus and, boy, are they ready to hear it? For 20 years he's been hearing, well, the Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's coming. We repented. He's at hand. And they didn't know that he had already done the work and had been resurrected and that the church had already come a very long way. And so Paul introduces them to Jesus Christ. They readily receive him because they've been waiting for him. They are rebaptized because John's baptism is different than the church's baptism. John's baptism was one of preparation. The believer's baptism is one of completion. Of a statement of faith that this is uh, where i have uh, put my faith in the completed work of christ not in preparing for the work of christ and in this context um, again we are dealing with jews alone it was necessary that they share in what all the rest of the church had already received and as the holy spirit and so Paul now, as a designate of the church, by means of the Jerusalem Council get grants that by his laying out of hands the Spirit come upon them. And again, they manifest it in the same way that the early church manifested it. So it doesn't matter if you are twenty years removed from the event. <laughs> twenty years removed. Listen, um, you were waiting just as much as the people in Jerusalem who were under John's baptism were waiting for the Messiah, so you've been waiting for the Messiah way out here in the hinterland. Well, from Jerusalem anyway. In, in Roman period, Ephesus was one of the centers of Asia Minor, the center. And we have the church opening up to the um, expatriate Jew, if you will, the one who is outside of the land. And so we have this presentation of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, my con- reason we do all this teaching is to communicate to you that there, there are those that are saying, well, if you haven't gotten the Holy Spirit in this fashion, in this way, through this mechanism, and if it hasn't manifested itself in this certain way, then you don't have the Holy Spirit and we'll help you achieve that through this activity that they engage you in. Um, and that is nowhere found in the Scriptures. As you see, um, if anything, we would fit more completely, um, since I don't know many of you are Jewish, we fit more completely under the experience of Cornelius, that the Spirit comes with belief. All those signs of His coming, of the speaking in tongues, of the prophesying, all of those signs uh, were for Jewish people, overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. And when they started using those with Gentiles, they started having problems. <laughs> it started getting messy, as we're going to see in the book of Acts. And it's something that Paul has to address in the, in the book of Corinthians. You guys are all focused on this, but that's you've missed the whole boat. You're abusing it. It's not something benefiting the church. It's something hindering your work. It's time to realize that there's going to come a time when, when that isn't what we're going to seek after because the church predominantly is going to be Gentilian which is what we have today. And so, if that's not how the Holy Spirit comes, then how do you know you've got Him? Cornelius, once they heard the Word of God and believed in it, they received the Spirit like that. There was no special activity of anyone uh, on them or around them or that they were involved in. They were simply sitting there, listening, hearing the Word of God being preached. And as they sat there listening and hearing it, they believed, and in that setting, it came upon them. They hadn't been baptized yet, so the Spirit isn't dependent upon being baptized. It's simply, I had to believe what I'm hearing. Well, well, now, how do I know that that's happened in my life? If I don't have all of these external manifestations, how do I know that that really did happen? And if it did happen, how does the Holy Spirit work in me? And this we want to spend the balance of our time together on. And this is going to very quickly take us to Galatians. Um, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, we, most people want to focus in on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That, oh, if you can do, speak in this tongue, or if you can uh, prophesy this, or if you can um, do this. And, they, and they've warped and twisted every one of those. Um, they're speaking in tongues. is no longer speaking a known language. to someone who needs to hear the gospel in their own language. It becomes this babbling language um, that nobody really understands. They've abused it and, and twisted it and warped it. And as soon as you see something, a movement, abuse, twist, or warp something of God, even in minor ways... <laughs> I don't think there is any such thing as that before God. But in our view, and even in minor ways... Oh, that you would take a step back and say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not doing things the way God says, so I have to bring question upon the whole activity what's going on here. And so when we see the history of how the modern Pentecostal movement has been brought forward, uh, we have to conclude that there is error here. That when there is twisting and there is abuse and when there is when there is um, uh, misguidedness, then that, none of that can be of the Spirit. None of that can be of God. And we must step away from that and go back into our scriptures and 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 study it out and say, how should this be going on and why isn't it going on? And I've heard people who are well invested in the Pentecostal movement share their experiences, and they said, well, you know, this one gal, she always has the Spirit, and she's always talking away. So one time I said, I have the interpretation for what you just said, and that is you're supposed to sit down and be quiet. Did she have the interpretation from the Spirit to tell that lady to sit down and be quiet? No. No more than that lady had anything from the Spirit to tell her to stand up and make noise in the church, in violation of Corinthians. It says you're supposed to remain silent in the church so this is what's going on in that movement. And so when we see that twisty and warping, we've got to step away from it and say, oh, I've got to reexamine that. And not just because it makes me feel good or my experiences. So we're going to come to God's Word not through the, through the apostolic gifts, not through the um, what we call revelatory gifts. That is where God reveals His will or purposes or His Word uh, through that uh, gift. But rather through the... Uh, instead of going through the gifts, which we all focus on, we see lots of gift inventories and studies, uh, I want to take us to the fruit. Because what you really want to know uh, this morning is whether I have the Spirit. And that's very different than knowing how the Spirit works. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit's action and life in you, the Holy Spirit's presence, um, is the fruit born. What is the fruitfulness? What is the evidence? What is the, the the proof that the Holy Spirit is there? And in Galatians, Paul uh, presents it to us. And he gives a lengthy list of things that were works of the flesh. And we can walk through those and we go, Oh yeah, I had that. Oh, oh man, I still struggle with that one. There, oh yeah, that was me. That was me. That was me. That was me. And you're intended to feel that way because... As he rehearses all these sins, we know that we were, if not are, participating in them. He says, that was your flesh. That's your old nature. The Spirit of God comes in, and, and it doesn't come in by a law. And so we're not going to set up a law that, uh, against all these things. And that if you break these, we're not going to enforce a legalistic system. But rather, we are going to insist upon a spiritual reality. That the, if the Spirit of God is resident in you, that the evidence, the fruit of what He is doing in your life, here's what it is. And we have these nine things listed off for us. You might say, well, is the Spirit of God in me? Well, then I have to ask you. Because the fruit of the Spirit, the the evidence, the the culmination of His work is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He concludes by saying, against such there is no law. There's no law that can produce those. There's no law that we need to enforce this. These are the Spirit's fruits. This is what happens. The Spirit of God is resident in you. This is the evidence. This is the production in your life. And we're not going to talk about whether you could speak in tongues or not. And yes, Cornelius did, but as for the benefit of the Jewish listeners, uh, we're going to talk about that when we get to that text a little bit more. Um, But here's the evidence that the Spirit of God is in you. Not whether you spoke in tongues, but whether you have peace. Do you have peace? Are you at peace with God, with your circumstances, with everything? Are you at peace? Do you have joy? I'm not talking about happiness and entertainment. We have have totally twisted that one up. I'm talking about real joy. We have totally confounded what love means. It is no longer an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. uh, But now it is is some feeling, or even worse, just sex. Um, We have missed completely what love involves. Do we really have it? That selflessness... Of long-suffering, and we think long-suffering means that I have to walk from the house to the car out of one air conditioning and the other air conditioning, and that's long-suffering if I have to go down the driveway a little bit. Some of you think it's long-suffering just to sit through the sermon. I know that, but you will not have a clue. If we think those are the long-suffering, kindness and goodness, oh, that there is kindness and, and gentleness I often associate um, and, and faithfulness. Um, with their s- I heard Pastor Leachman's Sunday school um, lesson this morning. He talked about perseverance, about faithfulness, about enduring to the end. Apparently that was last week, but he reviewed enough this week. I got some of it. That that is an aspect of our salvation. You can't claim the glorification if you don't have the perseverance, the faithfulness, that I'm going to continue. I'm going to, get, I'm going to, I'm going to be trustful, trustworthy of this. I'm going, to, I'm going to be faithful in my walk with God. And then, of course, that last one that none of us ever want to list, and that is self-control. That I can control myself now. I don't have to sin anymore. I can't exercise self-control. I can have self-possession. It is probably one of the more powerful evidences in our modern age of the Holy Spirit's presence is when you have self-possession. We're not walking around like a bunch of brute beasts that can't help ourselves. As the world would present you in an evolutionary model, you're just an advanced brute beast. Well, I can possess myself, by the power of the Spirit within me, I can control myself. I can control my mouth, I can control my thoughts, I can control my eyes, I can control my actions, I can control my attitudes. I am not passive in that respect. The world doesn't define those for me, I define them and bring them to the world. My circumstances don't define who I am. I define the circumstances. By the Spirit of God working in me, I can control myself. And things that might, from a worldly perspective, these things get me down, well, that's your decision. If you're a believer. Self-control is what the Spirit brings to your life. And where these nine are lacking, where these nine are absent, you should be gravely concerned of whether you are a child of God. Gravely concerned. Where there is only selfishness and not love as God describes it, of caring for others, of, of, invent, of, of honoring and, and uh, seeking the welfare of others, where there's no joy, where you just don't have joy in anything you do, let alone in evil being done to you, if you cannot take joy in life, then you need to be gravely concerned about whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you have the Spirit of God in you at all. I don't care what your experience in the past has been. I don't care if you've made a profession of faith. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you've been to church. None of that is equal to having a relationship with Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit invested in your life. Taking residence in you. Do not confuse those two. If these are absent, if these are lacking, if you have to conjure these up or just, oh, have I ever shown love to anybody? Let me think. You're all, all. You know, if you're struggling to identify these in your life, you need to be gravely concerned about your eternity because it is in deep jeopardy. For without this evidence of the Spirit of God, you are not Christ. For without the Spirit of God in you, you are none of His. Verse 24 of Galatians says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then the, the, there's a clause here, if, if we live in the Spirit, which means that if you're Christ, you, the Spirit is the one that, that you're living in. You've got, brought life to you in the Spirit of God. And at that, that we talk about, you know, that we have passed from death into life, that God love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so this life is connected that we are living in the Spirit. We have spiritual vitality now because of His presence. And if that's true, then there should be a result. And the result is that we should be walking in the Spirit. And many have made much of the fact that you can live in the Spirit and not walk in the Spirit. And I would say not for long. In my study of the Scripture, my answer to those people is not for long can you live in the Spirit and not walk in Him. Because the Bible promises that if you are a child of God and not walking in the Spirit of God, He will discipline you. And you'll either correct that action or He will remove you from this planet. Not for long can you live in the Spirit and not also walk in the Spirit. So don't use that idea, idea there to excuse yourself from these nine evidences, the fruit of Holy Spirit's life in you. Well, what if the Holy Spirit is living and I've just quenched Him down, I've just, He's just very limited in my life, um, and that's, but I'm still going to heaven. Well, if that's how you want to live your existence, good luck. If you want to take that kind of risk for the balance of your days here and going into all of your eternity, that the Spirit of God lives in you, but you have just quenched him and therefore He is silent, then live your merry life, but don't live it around me. Because that kind of Christianity is not going to produce anything of benefit to the kingdom of God. And that's the goal of my life. It's not to please me, to please my Savior to serve His kingdom, not the kingdom of Kirk. I want to jump forward to my last illustration. Which is going to be my main message. And that's in verse 8 of chapter 6. The reason we kept reading past the fruit of the Spirit is to talk about how to produce fruit. Um, I have tried for... 20 years 25 years Julie's 25 so we've been in New Mexico 25 years to grow stuff in a garden I've tried and failed miserably until this year I don't know I don't know if it's the llama manure or what it is but everything decided to grow this year okay and I every time I go out there and pick squash I just thank the Lord it's just, I don't even need to pick any squash. If it just grew and just green, it would just be exciting to me just to see green out there instead of death. I'm picking a lot of squash, a lot of green beans, cucumbers, and I have no idea what's going on under the ground with those potato plants, but the plants are huge. Because that's what I sowed. That's what I planted. And, watered. and I'm fearful that we have lost track of the principle of Galatians 6.8. That whatever you sow to, that's what you're going to reap to. We've sown to the flesh so much. How much are you sowing to the spirit? Maybe one of the biggest problems in our life, spiritually, is that We've taken seeds and planted them in our heart. And we've taken about, I got four of them here. And there's my seeds for God. I'm going to plant those. You know, I went to church once a month and I, I know the books of the Bible at least. And over here, this is what I'm planting for the flesh. And then we wonder why the Spirit of God is so little in our life and the flesh is so great. Over here, we've got all these opportunities we have to let the world talk to us. We call it entertainment. We call it conversation. We call it social media. We call it a lot of things, but we just let the world plant its seeds in our life. This will never grow on here, by the way. No llama manure the there and we plant seed after seed after seed after seed some thoughtlessly some very thoughtfully we have we we select friends that have no interest in the things of god and we let them grow deep in the soil of our heart we enter into romantic relationships with people we have no business being involved in and we let those seeds grow deep in the soil of our heart and we involve ourselves in the pursuit of the things of this world, and boy that is really deep in, the, in our heart of I got to have a better house, a nice car, I got to look a certain way if I'm not up on the fashions of the hour, and we let all of these seeds sown in our hearts. And we congratulate ourselves that we put this in our spiritual soul that we've sown this. And then, when the sun comes up and we're being beaten on in the drought of life that happens, we come running to pastor and say, why isn't the Spirit at work in my life? I can't tell where the Spirit wants me to go. What's he trying to do? I can't perceive anything. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to respond. And it's because all we planted there over the years, over the seasons of life, were piddly little seeds. We hardly ever watered them. And then we Look up to God and point our finger at Him as, why aren't you doing anything in my life? We never tilled our fallow ground. We never put any nutrients in there. We stuck four seeds in there. Here's my profession of faith. Here's my baptism. I got baptized once. Here's my church membership. And I remember once or twice putting an offering in the plate. We don't pass the plate, so the box. There we go, Lord, I got my seeds. Now you're going to have to do something. Never mind where all the rest of the resources of our life are sown. We expect God to bring a bountiful spiritual harvest out of our puny planting. And then we have the gall to to look at God and say it's His fault. We come and we say, well, what's God's problem? That he, the Spirit isn't working in my life. Where there's no evidence. And we chase after men who say, well, if you, if you conjure up this and, and get into this emotional state that we can produce some things that mimic the Holy Spirit's work. And all we're doing is throwing more seeds after the flesh. Paul says, don't get involved in any of that. You want to plant some real seeds? I mean some real seeds. You're going to sow in the Spirit. Those seeds are alive. And really, by the way, if these are the seeds that you're trusting in, those four things, um, and they aren't of faith, they're really not spiritual seeds at all either. That's the real danger. Is there a fruit of the Spirit in your life? And if there's not, then your soul's in jeopardy of eternity without Christ. That means eternal judgment. For the believer who says they have life in the Spirit, I have to challenge you by the command of God, you better walk in the Spirit, which means that you're going to sow to the Spirit so that you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And verse 8 is so important, and we've missed it. We, we keep thinking the Spirit is for us, and that it, it should just be done unilaterally from Him to us, that we have no requirement. Even though salvation doesn't come that way, God provides it, but we must by faith trust and accept it. Well, similarly with the Holy Spirit, He is there, He provides life, but we must by faith trust. He provides the power, but we must accept it. We must make it ours. And how do we do that? We do that by sowing to the Spirit, by walking in, by making those daily choices to pick up the sword of the Spirit and read it and bring it into our life of transforming our lives to be like Christ. We have the power to do that. If the Spirit resides in you. But most of us are too much like Simon the Sorcerer, and we're content to just live our old life and introduce it and try to Call it Christian now. Because we have now redefined Christianity to simply be spiritualizing our old life. Instead of radically transforming our lives into what Christ would have us to do and to generally sow seeds and shame on us that one hour a week is enough. Is that really enough in your life of God sowing His Word in your life with the fellowship of the saints? You spend more time than that with your favorite actor, most Christians spend more time now with Oprah every week. Oh, she's not on anymore, is she? I don't know. I don't have a TV, so I couldn't tell you. That's who we're investing ourselves, in. that's who we're sowing in our hearts. And somehow, this is enough spiritually. And then we wonder why we're dried up and withered, why our field is empty spiritually. Well, what have you sown in it? How often have you been in the Word of God this week? This exercise of writing these quiet times, they're going to be great for the kids. They're even better for you. Because you have to pretty much read the passage to come up with those, even the puzzles and to figure out what you're supposed to ask these little kids. And basically, you're doing quiet times. Praise God. It's a tool preparing material for others to learn from God's Word. It's called discipleship. And none of you participating in that project should be able to walk away and say, I don't know what discipleship, I don't know how to do it. Well, yeah, you do. You just read the passage and you figure out what it means and you put it in people's lives. Invest yourself in the Holy Spirit and then you will see His evidence. Then you will reap everlasting life. And um, that last phrase of the verse is, is startling. It doesn't say, "So to the Spirit. Will of the Spirit reap blessings? Will reap power? Will reap ministry opportunities? Will reap direction in your life? All those things we expect from the Holy Spirit will reap illumination, That's not ultimately you sow the Spirit of God, your eternal life is dependent upon it. Let me share that again. Your eternal life is dependent upon you sowing to the Spirit. And again, I have to go back to the agricultural example, and that is of the sower in the soils. Jesus Christ said, Some just disappeared. Some grew up and as soon as the sun came out, that was a real plant. It had real potential. It really sprouted to life. And then it died. And that's startling. It flies in the face of all the eternal security people out there and what they're teaching. You know, just pray the prayer, you're saved forever. That's not what my Bible teaches. It teaches you need to sow in the Spirit to have everlasting life. That faith is not a single act, it's a continuous act. Placing your faith in Christ is not a one-time event, it's a lifelong event. Where's the evidence? Where's the fruit? So while we get caught up in the mechanics of acts and the Bringing of the Holy Spirit, and we have so many people bring so much confusion, we've lost sowing in the Spirit. What am I sowing in my life to have the Spirit grow and bring forth fruit that I might have everlasting life? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for a powerful presentation of your truth, and Lord, that, that we see in your word. And we thank you for. Working through Paul and writing the book of Galatians and Luke and Acts. And Lord, we thank you for these passages and we pray you might forgive us for our neglect of them. Not only in the neglect of reading them, but much more importantly in the neglect of living them. Forgive us, Lord. But only forgive us if we intend to leave here ready to change. And to repent of that. We might be found faithful in walking in your spirit. And Lord, if there's any here who claim your spirit, but there's no evidence, Lord, make it clear to them that they need a relationship with you. They might put away the false means of reaching you. They might trust in your son Jesus Christ this day, this hour. Receive your spirit and walk in him. They might have life. Again, Lord, we pray my work in us, not only this hour, but in the hours to come and the days to come that this message might not leave our thoughts even as we leave its presence, it might linger in our lives, and produce fruit to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.